The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. There's just some things in life you can never be truly prepared for, like the unlikely chance of being wrongfully convicted of murdering someone, let alone a loved one. In the case of Russ Faria, his lack of planning for such an unforeseen moment, because no one does, unless you're a murderer, despite being completely innocent, would be a weakness the justice system would ultimately use against him in a tunnel vision pursuit. Whether they have the right man, or in this case, woman. Join me now for the conclusion of our two-part series on the false conviction of Russ Faria. You'll learn how Pam's greed eventually opened the door for the justice system to right a wrong that should have never happened in the first place, and Russ's mission to make sure it doesn't happen to anyone ever again. In December 2013, Russ Faria was officially sentenced to life in prison for first-degree murder. It had been 727 days since he'd walked into his home and discovered his wife Betsy murdered. 727 days of being the only suspect ever seriously considered by police. But there was an ominous irony to the date of his sentencing itself, December 23rd. It was exactly two years to the date Betsy's life insurance policy was amended, making Pam Hupp the sole beneficiary of $150,000. Betsy would have known, and this came out actually in the civil trial, but she would have known that she could make a change on her insurance if she was transferring it to somebody that this money is to be used for this purpose. That wasn't on there, so I, to this day, I'm not sure exactly what happened and how her signature got on that paperwork and how she was coerced into doing so. The librarian at the library where they went to get the document notarized did testify that Pam did most of the talking and Betsy seemed very nervous. So I don't know what was said or done to make that happen. The fact that Pam had become Betsy's insurance beneficiary just four days before her murder had been completely suppressed from the jury at Russ's trial. And if you think that sounds ludicrous, what truly boggles the mind is that police and prosecutors never seemed suspicious of the alarming detail. Disturbingly, it seemed, there was every reason to believe the moment Betsy signed Pam as her beneficiary was the moment she unknowingly signed her own death warrant. But what Russ and his lawyer, and least of all Pam herself, could have ever guessed was that it was what Pam did with the $150,000, or rather, what she didn't do with it, would ultimately open the door for Russ to walk out of prison a free man. However, before any of that could happen, Russ languished in prison for 14 months, and although he never lost hope, he realized he needed to come to terms with the very real possibility he might be stuck in prison for the foreseeable future, if not for the rest of his natural life. There's a famous movie out there called The Shawshank Redemption. I'm sure everybody has seen that. There's a famous line by Morgan Freeman that he says to Andy Dufresne, either get busy living or get busy dying. And so you get busy living. I got a job, I worked in the kitchen and uh, just got along in prison. I joined a group called Toastmasters because I thought, well, you can join a gang or you can join a group like this and was trying to just prepare myself. I knew that in our state, the average time for an appeal is about 10 to 14 years. So I was preparing myself for that. There was virtually nothing Russ could do to speed up the legal process outside prison walls. 
All he could do was buckle in for the long haul and place his trust in the hands of his defense attorney, Joel Schwartz, and adapt to the terrifying reality of being confined inside a maximum security prison for who knows how long. There's a lot of dark times that you go through, especially when you know you're accused of something that you didn't do. And it's the thought of not letting those people down that keeps you going. You know, it's the thought of getting to see my mother again because I could just see the hurt in her eyes every time she came to see me. You know, when I spent over a year in the county jail, and I'm Italian and Portuguese, so I have a certain complexion on my skin. During the time that you spend in jail, you don't get to go outside at all other than walking across to the courtroom. My nice olive complexion turned into an ashy color, which didn't change back until I got to prison and was able to get outdoor recreation for the first time in nearly two years. And my mom would make comments about that, you know, that I looked sickly. Yeah, and, and just to see the pain and suffering in, in my family and friends' eyes every time I had to go to visits, which visits are one thing that you look forward to every week, you know, but it was still very sad because you got to leave them at the end. As happy as it was, it was kind of a painful experience too every week. The stories surrounding false convictions are naturally focused on the individual, but beyond the innocent person sitting in prison, there are countless other casualties and collateral damages caused by miscarriages of justice that never make the news. Families are often torn apart, choosing different sides. Tensions are heightened. Words that can never be unsaid are spoken, and actions that can never be undone are taken. People tend to show their true stripes during those times, and you find out who your true friends were or are. And uh, I found out I had quite a few of them, you know. Uh, then there were those that turned their back on me and betrayed me and lied about me and, you know, even went as far as testifying against me or stealing from me. A friend that, that even betrayed me and deserted me and said some nasty things about me to the police and on TV and whatnot. And it was just really devastating to me. But to see my family go through that, knowing that I was so close to my family throughout my whole life, all of those people were affected. In prison, Russ did everything he could to make his horrible situation as manageable as possible. He kept his head down, made friends with the older convicts who could teach him how to navigate the new terrain, and did his best to behave well enough to ensure he'd be allowed food visits, special visits where visitors are allowed to bring in food from the outside. And as Russ was busy creating a sustainable routine on the inside, things were happening on the outside. Things that were about to, once again, alter the course of his life dramatically. I believe it was late February, early March of 2015. I got back from work. I was working in the kitchen. I worked the morning shift, so I went in extremely early and I got off around one or so. When I got back that day, I was told I had a phone call from my lawyer. So I got on the phone with Joel, and he had a little bit of excitement in his voice. And anybody that knows Joel, and even if you don't know him, if you've watched him at all, he is, plays things very close to the vest, and he doesn't show a lot of emotion. And that's what makes him really good at what he does. But he had some noticeable positive excitement in his voice. He says, uh, did you watch the news last night? While Russ was incarcerated at Jefferson City Correctional Center, some of the other inmates advised him to switch attorneys to other high-profile lawyers who'd recently had their clients exonerated. But Russ's confidence in Joel Schwartz never wavered, and neither did Joel's deep belief in Russ's innocence. And it was a good thing, because Russ was about to discover just how well-placed his confidence had been all along. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, Let's go back to when Joel asked Russ if he'd seen the news that night. Russ had seen the news, but didn't remember seeing anything exciting. And then it suddenly hit him. You're in St. Louis, and I'm in Jefferson City. You're 200 miles away from me. You get a different news than I get. So what did you see on the news? And then he informed me that for the fourth time in the history of our state, I was awarded what's called a Mooney motion, which means that 
New evidence has been presented that would have possibly changed the outcome of the original trial. By that time, there was a lot of publicity in my case, not just with the local news, but the national Dateline program, and it had gotten worldwide. So I, I believe that the appeals court was looking for a really good reason to send this back, and Joel gave him one. Again, he's very good at his job, and he works with a lot of very good people. My cousin and everybody helping out with all of that, he presented a document that the appeals court was happy with, and they wrote a very scathing statement back to the Lincoln County authorities just to kind of sum it up in a few words said hey you guys need to have a hearing for this guy to see if he gets a new trial and if he doesn't get a new trial we're not going to be really happy about this the new evidence joel used as the basis for his incredibly rare moon emotion came from an unlikely source pam hop herself shortly after russ's conviction his stepdaughter sued pam to receive the $150,000 life insurance benefit signed over to her. During depositions for the civil suit, Pam testified to two extremely startling admissions. First, she claimed, a detective pressured her into setting up a revocable trust in the girls' names before trial, specifically because it would help the prosecution's case against Russ, something she did just one week before trial. Second, Pam admitted she'd taken out all but $300 from the trust just weeks after the trial. The court found the new evidence would likely produce a different verdict if presented at a new trial. And with that, Lincoln County was ordered to hold a hearing to decide whether or not Russ would get a retrial. So that was exciting news. I mean, I was just, couldn't believe it. But this hearing was scheduled for June of the same year, almost immediately our judge, Chris Kunza Minnemeyer, recused herself, I think because she had by this time been seen around town cavorting with her friend Leah Askey. And then they appointed a judge out of St. Louis by the name of Stephen Omer. And Joel really liked him. I don't think he'd ever had that judge hear one of his cases, but Joel knew that Judge Omer had a really good reputation, a reputation as being fair and honest, the reputation as a whistleblower among his own peers. You know, if he saw somebody doing something unethical or malicious, he would report them. And that's what we wanted. So we thought that was our best chance at getting a fair trial. And he became our judge. And I had to wait from March until June in prison for this hearing that was going to happen and be very anxious about that. Much to the dismay of prosecutor Leah Askey, the judge ruled in favor of a new trial, and Russ's conviction was officially overturned. It was clear to see that with Judge Omer on the bench, there was a new sheriff in town. A really great feeling and experience. Great weight lifts off your shoulders. I mean, yeah, I knew I still had to go through a trial and there was the weight of that, but finally, something positive was happening. Russ was soon transferred from prison back to the Lincoln County Jail where he was set to await his new trial, scheduled five months later in November 2015. Brought me back there to the place that I was all too familiar with, and uh, my family was trying to get me out, and that might happen soon. I'm like, yeah, you know, my bond's still quite large. It's not a million dollars anymore, but it's still pretty big, and I don't know about all that. And then uh, within a day or two of that, uh, my mom and my sister and my cousin Mary came to see me, now we're back to having to visit for one hour instead of four, like you get in prison. And now we're back to being behind glass. So you have to talk on the phone to your family and your loved ones. And uh, kept telling me how hard they were trying to get me out. And they said, they're, they're going to get me out soon. And I'll tell you something about the word soon. It's a very small word. It's only four letters, but it's a big word because it depends on where you're sitting as to what your definition of soon is me my definition is soon from where i'm sitting is yesterday so you guys do what you do but i'm okay here you know I'll, I'll do what i gotta do russ's skepticism of his family's use of the word soon was entirely understandable given the last three and a half years of his life but unbeknownst to russ more good things were happening on the outside 
predetermined schedule that we made of times and days when I would call home because uh, collect calls out of a jail are very expensive. And so Tuesday rolled along, and that was the day I was supposed to call my mother. And uh, so I got up out of bed and tried to call my mom, and the phone call didn't go through. Okay, well, she could be in the bathroom. She could be doing laundry. You know, I know she's expecting my call, so I'll call back in just a little bit. So I went on and took my shower and did my morning routine that, that you do and got back on the phone. phone is roughly about five or six feet from the door to what they call the pod. And uh, the CEO that had booked me in opens that door while I'm on the phone waiting for this phone call to connect. And he says a phrase that anybody that's ever been locked up knows means only one thing. And they long to hear that phrase. And that phrase is only three words and it's called bunk and junk. And he said my last name, Faria, and followed it with those three words, bunk and junk. And I couldn't believe my ears. And I, I looked up from the phone and I said, what? And pretty much in that tone. <laughs> and he said, bunk and junk, dude, you're getting out of here. Russ's cousin, Mary, who'd been one of the biggest supporters throughout the entire ordeal, agreed to put her house up as collateral for Russ's bond. And as it turned out, when Russ's family said soon, they literally meant it. And I was allowed to go in and change into street clothes for my first time since my trial when I had to wear a suit and that was a great great feeling but that feeling was nothing compared to walking out that door and uh, it didn't compare to walking out that door and hugging my mom <laughs> I was surprised <laughs> I knew everybody was trying to get me out, but I didn't know it would be this soon. You know, they come back and told me to pack my stuff. So I kind of figured I was going. I was just got off the phone trying to call my mom. So. <laughs> when I was in prison, they all asked me, you know, hey, well, what would you do when you got out? I'm like, oh, I'd get a limo, go have a big party. And uh, I'd give me some pain terrace pizza. That's my favorite pizza locally around here. And I have some Dr. Pepper. <laughs> so I love Dr. Pepper. And I walked out those doors, and they had rented a limo bus. And on that limo bus was my favorite pain terrace pizza and Dr. Pepper. And they took me to a party at a local bar, and I got to reconnect with many of my family and friends that didn't have the opportunity to come and see me in prison. You can only have so many people on your visitors list. So many of those folks got to come and, and see me again, and we got to reconnect. And the, the owner of the bar treated me to my first steak dinner. <laughs> Unexpectedly getting out of jail on bond was perhaps the best surprise of Russ Faria's life. But after getting out and reconnecting with his family and friends, it was Russ's turn to give someone else a surprise. Russ's father had long suffered from depression, and because the family didn't want to risk his health by getting his hopes up in case something fell through, Russ's dad hadn't been informed his son was expected to be released that day. So my dad didn't know it all, and he went about his day, and he worked nights at the local grocery store. So uh, my license, amazingly enough, hadn't expired, and so I was able to drive for the first time. And I drove around the corner to where my father worked, and uh, went in and got to see my pops. Well, he was my best friend, and we all went home together. Then I got to go home and see my dog. She remembered me. It seems that uh, through my sister and mom, who were keeping her coming to see me at prison throughout those years and giving me a hug, they were bringing back my scent. So she knew I was still around somewhere. Even though Russ was now outside of prison, he was in no way a free man. With Russ's new trial just months away, he now found himself preparing for the fight of his life facing a police department, a prosecutor, and a judicial system that were determined to throw him back in prison, regardless of the overwhelming amount of evidence proving he was innocent, because there was every possibility they'd do it again. However, Joel Schwartz was determined not to let his client get railroaded again and came up with a rather unorthodox idea. And then it was time to go about preparing for a new trial. 
And we go to Joel's office one day, and he kind of had an epiphany when he was out jogging or something that morning. And he says, uh, hey, I want to talk to you about this. How do you feel about a bench trial? And he went into explaining what a bench trial was, which is there's no jury present. The judge hears everything. Now, the advantages to that is, like in our first case, there were things that the jury was sent out because it wasn't admissible. However, if you have a bench trial, the judge hears all of that. So your chance for an appeal, if you lose that, is very slim and none versus a jury trial, and it's a long shot. But after he explained it to me and Mary, we looked at one another and we had that kind of unspoken communication. And we both looked back at Joel and said, yeah, let's do it. That was one of the best decisions we made. The move to have a bench trial in a capital murder case is almost unheard of. With a jury, the prosecution needs to convince all 12 jurors of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. With a bench trial, on the other hand, the prosecution only needs to convince one person. Despite all his colleagues advising against it, Joel knew their best shot was with one judge who'd consider the actual evidence rather than being swayed by wild theories and emotional appeals. Far from simply rehashing the first trial, however, there were a number of surprises at Russ's retrial. Shortly before the trial, Joel received a package from Leah Askey's office that contained 132 pictures that we had been told for the previous three and a half years didn't come out because the camera malfunctioned. Mike Merkel, Detective Mike Merkel, testified to that in court during our first trial. We were amazed that we got this. This was a big, big piece of information. The envelope containing the photos had been sent to Joel anonymously. How long the police or prosecutors had access to the photos remains unknown. Whatever the case may be, Russ and Joel believed they now had in their hands exonerating evidence. Evidence that had been intentionally withheld from them, perhaps since the very beginning. Naturally, they assumed prosecutor Leah Askey knew they'd been sent the photos since they'd come from her office. They soon learned she had no idea. And Leah starts her opening statement. She makes a statement about, you'll hear about the luminol and the pictures, and you'll hear about this. She didn't say nothing about seeing it. Joel looked at Nate and I. He said, with a grin on his face, she doesn't know we have these pictures. And so we were all really excited about that, for that moment to come during the trial. One particularly damning piece of evidence used against Russ at his first trial were claims made by detectives that Luminol had revealed evidence of a cleanup at the crime scene. But according to Detective Merkel at trial, the camera had malfunctioned and there weren't any photos that showed the supposed Luminol reactions. Or more importantly for Russ, the absence of any reaction. Instead, they would have to just trust him and take him at his word. The photos that Joel received, however, were indisputable proof these claims were never true. And uh, Mike Merkel promptly got up on the stand. Leah questioned him and he told all about these pictures that didn't come out, so on and so forth. And then Joel got his chance at, he got his chance at cross-examination and he started asking him about these pictures and the camera and it malfunctioning and how come there's not even a, a negative or if it was a digital picture, how come there's not a digital file that shows that it didn't come out or that it malfunctioned? And the guy just kept on digging his hole a bit deeper and deeper as he went. And then Joel pulls out this manila folder about two inches thick, and he slammed it down on the witness stand. And he says, do me a favor and open that. Tell me what you see. But look on that man's face when he had to open that folder and look at those pictures that came out was priceless. Only topped by the look on Leah Askey's face because she looked at Joel and said under her breath, where the hell did you get them? This is what's known in the legal world as a Perry Mason moment, when a courtroom is shocked by the presentation of new evidence or an unexpected answer from a witness. Although often seen in movies and TV shows, it rarely happens that way in real life. But in Russ's case, 
it truly did. Russ's second trial lasted five days, and during closing arguments before the judge, the prosecutor abandoned the absurd Game Night Friends conspiracy theory she'd used at the first trial. And without this wild theory, there was simply no reasonable explanation how Russ could have possibly committed the murder. Instead, every piece of evidence proved Russ had always been exactly where he said he'd been, at the exact times he said he was there. The only question now was what the judge would choose to believe. This is the second time I had to go through standing up with my attorneys next to me. I stood there and faced the judge and he, he had a uh, very long statement. I, I couldn't tell you today if that statement lasted five minutes or five years because all I really wanted to do was get to the end of that statement. I wanted to hear what the verdict was. I wanted to hear those words. He gets to the end of the statement and he says, uh, Russell Scott Faria on the charge of murder in the first degree, not guilty. On November 6, 2015, Russ was officially a free man once again. And now all he could do was pick up the remaining pieces of his life and once again, get busy living. Russ had every reason to believe he'd already used up his entire life story's worth of ups and downs, victory and defeat, twists and turns. But in just a few months, he'd discover that life had another crazy surprise in store for him. And this one just might be the wildest of all. But in order to tell you about what happened next, we need to introduce you to someone else. Carol McAfee. At this point in Russ's story, he hadn't met Carol yet, but soon their lives would forever be entwined by fate. I was born in Colorado. My dad was in the Army. We lived on the Army base right over there by Pikes Peak. Lived there for almost 40 years. Then my birth mom took off. Didn't have the greatest childhood. It was, it was rough. My dad wasn't the greatest dad. He was a little heavy with the hand. Got changed a lot. As I got older, but I left home at 17. When I was 19, I moved to Tennessee, met my son's father, got pregnant. Over the next two decades, Carol experienced life's share of ups and downs, rocky relationships she navigated as a single parent, and then two cancer scares, one resulting in a double mastectomy. By the time Russ and Carol's stories intersected, on August 10, 2016, Nine months after Russ's not guilty verdict, Carol was living in a mobile home park in O'Fallon, Missouri, about 40 minutes west of St. Louis, a neighborhood frequented by drug dealers, addicts, and other seedy behavior. It seemed many of Carol's challenging experiences in life had been preparing her for something, an intuition she developed that would almost certainly save her life. And I was cleaning house and I stepped out the door to let the dog out. Now, I live in a trailer park. This lady drives by that I've never seen before. She waves. And I guess the biggest mistake I did made was waving back. I won't do it again. And she pulls up to my driveway, like, and she's just staring at me. Now, I have a cute dog. She had never growled a day in her three, four years of life. But she is going apeshit. She's running back and forth. She's got the hair standing up on her neck. She's growling. She's barking and I was like, Mimsy? This lady, she's just sitting there staring at her window. Just, just sitting there, straight face, no smile, nothing, just staring at me. And it probably wasn't 30 seconds, but it felt like it was like maybe 30 seconds and I walked down there and I'm like smoking my cigarette. I'm like, help you, you're pissing my dog off. And she says, and I quote, do you babysit? My mind says, this lady's off her rocker. She's in a trailer park full of drug addicts and she doesn't know me. Now, Carol loved children and had a soft spot for the youth in her neighborhood. But just like her dog, Carol too was feeling suspicious of the unfamiliar woman who just rolled up into her neighborhood. There was no way she planned on being forthcoming with a complete stranger. So I tell her, no, I don't like kids. But I'm the neighborhood mom. In a given weekend, I got 18 teenagers in my three-bedroom mobile home. 
I had kids that would try to sleep in my dryer just so they could sleep. But there's a place for me to sleep. Can I stay? I'd say, guys, breakfast is ready. They'd open the closet door and kids would start falling out. That's how many kids would be in my house on the weekends. And their parents loved it because they got the weekend off and they knew their kids were safe. After Carol's dismissal of the babysitting question, the woman in the car tried a different approach. Like, well, my name's Kathy and I work with Dateline. Next thing that goes through my head is, you are wearing blue jeans and a scrub top. You must be out of your mind. The woman was claiming to be Kathy Singer, a producer at NBC's long-running true crime television show, Dateline. She told Carol she wanted her to perform a voice reenactment of a 911 call for the show. I don't like people, I don't trust people, and I have very good reason for feeling both ways. So I'm listening to her. She's like, you know, if you come and help us with this soundbite reenactment, we'll pay you $1,000 cash, no paper trail back to Uncle Sam. Okay, I'm gonna go with this, right? She's like, so do you think you'd be interested in helping us? And I was like, I'll tell you what, let me take my dog in the house because with her growling and barking, I can't hear you. Why don't you pull in my driveway? And when I come back out, we'll talk about it. As I'm walking up my stairs, she says, if you help me, you cannot bring your keys, your wallet, your cell phone, or your cigarettes. The producers don't like clutter. Well, now I'm already thinking we're up to something shady, right? So I put the dog in the house. I was wearing a hoodie. I put a knife up the sleeve, another one in the front pocket. And so I go out there and I climb in her car on purpose because in my mind, you done brought up kids, and you're going to hurt me before you're going to hurt a child, because I also have like six nieces and nephews running this park. Not to mention all my babies that are not my babies, you know? I'm the neighborhood mom. They're all my babies. A country girl at heart, Carol wasn't wearing any shoes when she climbed into the woman's car, almost never wearing shoes unless she had to. She didn't know it at the time, but it was this small detail that was about to turn into a life-saving excuse. So I sit and we're sitting in her car and I'm like, where'd you say you were recording this at? She says, oh, we went rented one of the new mobile homes in your park. I knew that was a lie because the manager was a friend of mine. And she strikes up a conversation about, oh, have you ever had to dial 911? I said, lady, I live in a trailer park. And she's like, oh, I've never had to call 911. I'm from Chicago. Those plates say Missouri and there's no Enterprise rent-a-car sticker in these windows. So, you know, like the lies and the red flags are just consistently going off. And at this point, before she, when we're stopped at the stop sign, I'm like, you got any ID? She's like, oh, yeah, I have a business card and stuff in my purse. I'll give it to you when we get there. And I'm like, all right. She takes a left out of my neighborhood. And I said to her again, I said, where'd you say we're recording? She says, oh, we rented a house behind the shops in Lake St. Louis. There is nothing behind that except the highway, an attorney's office, and an abandoned daycare, and a boat and RV storage place. So now you've done lied and tripped yourself up in a lie and don't even realize it yet. With almost every word coming from the woman's mouth, Carol grew more and more convinced something was seriously wrong. To the point where even Carol's curiosity needed to take a back seat to her personal safety. She knew she needed to get out of that car and fast. And I said, you know what? That I need to run back to my house real quick. I don't have shoes on and I didn't lock my door. She's like, oh, you don't need shoes. We won't be there long. I need to... I was like, yeah, but I didn't lock my door and it doesn't stay locked. And if my husband's dog gets out, here's the great line. He'll kill me. She's like, okay, I'll run you back real quick. But you gotta hurry. I walked in the house, took the knife out of my hoodie. Well, one of them. And I went out there and told her, I was like, look, I'm sorry, I can't help you. My son was calling when I walked in. He's at work. He's sick. I gotta go pick him up. She's like, oh, I can take you. And I'm like, no, it's fine. You're obviously busy. I can do it myself. Plus, I got to drive all the way to the city. She started to get out of her car. As the woman began stepping out of her car, Carol saw she noticed the security cameras attached to the outside of her mobile home. She looked up and saw my cameras like she, she says, you have cameras. And I said, yeah, I do. Blowing it off, right? And blew it off and she's like well if I come back in an hour can you still help me I was like yeah I can she's like why do you have cameras I said lady not only do I have cameras but I have a knife in my pocket and I had to dial 911 have a good day and I turned around and walked to my house and she pulled out of my driveway just like nothing happened so I called the cop it wouldn't be long before Carol would learn just how wise she'd been to get out of that woman's car because six days later on August 16th a 911 dispatcher received this call. 
911, where's your emergency? Hey, hello, there's someone breaking in my house. Help! What's Help. the address you're at? Hello! You want me to get your wife? No, I'm not getting in the car with you. No, get What's away. What's the address? Get out! Get out! Get out! Help! Ma'am, what's the address you're at? Uh, help! Help! I have somebody breaking in. No, no, no! Hello? Help! Help! Ma'am, can you hear me? Help! What's the address you're at? What's your name? My name is Pam. Pam, as in Pam Hub. The same woman who'd attempted to lure Carol into her car by pretending to be a producer with Dateline. Following the 911 call, police responded immediately to Pam's residence, and as soon as they arrived, found Pam in near hysterics, yelling she'd just shot an intruder, a man who tried abducting her in her own home. When they asked Pam for more details, she gave a harrowing story that seemed a bit far-fetched. This is a detective reading Pam's official statement to police. So this has started running errands about 9 a.m., went to Conoco gas station and got gas, a soda, went to the mall by Hobby Lobby and drove by my daughter's to see if she was home. Came home and let the dog out to pee. As I was backing out, a car came out of the side street and stopped in front of the driveway. A man got out of the car and ran up to my car. He jumped in and told me to take him to the bank to get Russ's money. He had things in his hands and a knife. He put the knife to my neck and told me to drive to the bank to get Russ's money. The man kept looking behind himself out the window at one point I threw the car in park, thinking I was going to try to get out of the car. He started yelling things at me and turned around to look out his window again. I hit his arm and ran out of the car. He ran after me, yelling at me. I tried to hold the garage door shut while I called 911. He pushed the door open. As I ran to the bedroom, I tried to lock the door. The man started banging on the door. I got my gun, and as the door flew open, I shot everything in my gun. It didn't take long for the detective who interviewed Pam to become increasingly suspicious of her version of events. Things just weren't adding up. According to Pam, she'd shot the intruder while holding a pistol with both hands. However, as we all know from the 911 call, she was holding the phone when it happened. And there was more. The call itself sounded staged, almost like a reenactment. But if we learned anything from Russ's 911 call, the way a victim reacts and sounds in a traumatic situation can easily be misinterpreted. However, in this case, detectives noticed something wrong at the beginning of the recording. The part before the operator says, 911, where's your emergency? And what they noticed was silence. In actual emergencies, commotions on the victim's end of the line can easily be heard as soon as the recording starts, often for two or three seconds before the dispatcher begins speaking. But in the case of Pam's 911 call, there was no commotion at the beginning of the call. Just absolute silence. As detectives analyzed Pam's 911 call, investigators at the crime scene were trying to learn the identity of the man Pam had shot, but there was no wallet or ID on him. Instead, what they found were nine $100 bills with sequential serial numbers in his pocket, along with a note that read, get up in car and garage, take the bank, get Russ money, should be 100 to 150,000. Take Hup back to house. Get rid of her. Make look like Russ' wife. Make sure knife is sticking out of neck. But then police discovered something incredibly damning. Another $100 bill in Pam's dresser drawer 
that matched the exact sequence of serial numbers in the bills found on the victim. Later that night, the victim was identified through fingerprints as being Louis Gumpenberger. His mother had just filed a missing persons report on him that very day. A 33-year-old man who'd suffered from both physical and mental disabilities, resulting from a car crash years earlier. As a result, he had trouble walking and talking, and was entirely incapable of running. His doctors would later confirm it would have been nearly impossible for Lewis to have carried out the crime in the way Pam described. It was also becoming imminently obvious the entire ordeal had been staged to look like a failed hitman attempt, staged, they believed, by Pam Hupp herself. And although they didn't know it at the time, Lewis had likely been lured by Pam in the same way she'd previously attempted to lure Carol six days earlier. You're not intended in life to know how you're supposed to die. Like if you get cancer, like poor Betsy, whatever, and you, you know, it's a medical thing and you know you're going to die. That's one thing. But you're not supposed to know how you're going to die. And that sticks with you. I quit making jokes that day. By this point, Pam had become a minor celebrity in the area. Because of the notoriety surrounding Resferia's false conviction and release, and now there was the news of the shooting that was spreading like wildfire. And one of the first to hear about it was Russ. I thought everything was going to go back to normal. And I'm staying at my mother's, putting my life back together. My dad's at work. He calls to talk to me. My dad doesn't call home from work at all, ever. Unless it's an emergency. And he's excited. He says, she did it again. She did it again. And I'm like, what? What What happened, Pop? What's going on? And he says, she shot somebody. And I'm like, what? And uh, it just so happened that one of his co-workers lived across the street from Pam Hupp. And uh, she shot an individual, and my, she called to tell my dad at work, who promptly called me. So what had happened was Pam had gone out hunting, human hunting. She's a serial killer in my eyes, and uh, you'd have to try real hard to prove that she's not. And I was just, what? You know, I, I couldn't believe this. And the first thought that went through my mind, because where I've been through and, and everything that's happened, in, in the previous few years was she's going to try and include me in this some how I didn't know how but from her story it appeared to be self-defense that this individual attacked her was an intruder in her house and uh, she shot him Russ's instincts proved to be exactly right Pam had orchestrated an elaborate but easily transparent hoax to make it look like Russ had hired a hitman to steal back the life insurance money from Pam. So the police took her in and questioned her and released her. But moreover, the county police, they remembered an incident about a week prior about this individual that called them and told them about some creepy lady in their neighborhood. And it sounded really familiar to Pam Hupp. So they said, you might want to talk to this gal. And so they went and talked to her. And then they assigned a police detail to her. And she lived across the street from one of my best friends. So I'd see these cops out there when I went to my buddy's house I'd asked about him he said well this guy's kind of something to do with you and he kind of filled me in a little bit I'm like oh okay so within a few days of that she was arrested Pam Hupp and taken in and then she stabbed herself in the neck you heard correctly Pam Hupp stabbed herself in the neck after being arrested and taken to the police station for questioning she asked to use the bathroom what detectives failed to observe was Pam slipping a pen into the waistline of her pants. Her intention? Well, to do exactly what she did. Ultimately, the wounds were superficial and not fatal, but she was immediately whisked away in an ambulance. But we were really relieved that she was taken off the street. I mean, we saw her as a dangerous person. And what it, that we suspect happened was when I was exonerated, Joel went to the U.S. attorneys and turned over uh, all the information from my case and said, you need to relook at this, and if you appoint me as special prosecutor, I guarantee you a conviction. So they were looking back into it. We can only surmise that because Leah Askey knew about this, she told her friend Pam Hupp, 
Pam got scared and she went hunting. That's when she approached Carol and then found a disabled gentleman by the name of Louis Gumpenberger, who she lured into her house and murdered in cold blood. Although Russ had his own suspicions as to why Pam murdered Louis Gumpenberger, Pam herself has never actually confessed or explained her actions. Lo and behold, Pam decided to take what's called an Alfred plea. But an Alfred plea basically states, I'm not admitting any guilt, but I'm saying the state has enough information to convict me if I went to trial. So it's kind of a cop-out. While Pam's Alfred plea wasn't technically an admission of guilt, she was at least finally being held accountable by the justice system and in August 2019 was sentenced to life without parole for the murder of Louis Gumpenberger. Russ and Joel went to the courtroom that day to watch the sentencing. Also in attendance was Carol McAfee, the woman who Pam had initially pegged to be the victim in her outrageous murder plot. And that was the next time Pam and I saw each other face to face. I'm sitting in the first row and I lean over like this. I didn't blink. I didn't move. She turns her head. She smiles. I didn't move. She looks away. She turns back around. She smiles. I didn't move. Turns around the third time. She smiles, waves, and says hi. And that's when I knew I had her attention. I looked at her and said, I'm the one that put you there, bitch. She pulled back. She wasn't smiling no more. Carol never considered herself a victim of Pam's, not even a survivor. Carol considers herself a fighter who won't stand for any BS. And it seemed she finally met her match, because unbeknownst to almost anyone at the time, Russ and Carol had fallen in love. Brought together by coincidence, tragedy, and the unbelievable whirlwind that Pam Hupp had unleashed on O'Fallon, Missouri. Remember how Russ told us one of his best friends lived in a trailer across the street from Carol? Just weeks after Pam's arrest in August 2016, that friend decided it was time Russ and Carol should meet. During that time, I started hanging out with my buddy and whatnot, found out about this person that lived across the street. And so she came out and introduced herself to me. And I says, well, I'm Russ and I'm an asshole. I'm Carol, I'm a bitch. And we shook hands and I said, well, we should get along just fine. So we kind of struck up a, a friendship, a little relationship, because I'd see her across the street over there sitting on her porch. <laughs> I'd tease her from across the street. We'd walk back and forth and talk once in a while. And, uh, you know, we kind of struck up a friendship. And uh, the next spring, we started hanging out quite a bit. It was nice to have a new friend that I hadn't met prior, you know. And as I said before, I'm a cautious person and don't make new friends real easy. And here's somebody that I had a connection with, you know, and could maybe help out, you know, in, in the situation that they were in, getting ready to go to this trial. And she was kind of going through a rocky marriage at that time, which led to a divorce. We became friends instantly, mostly because it was comedy. And, you know, he just made me feel good about myself the first time we met. You know, we laughed. So we were friends for like a year and a half. And I had feelings for him, which I was great with. I knew Russ didn't want to be in a relationship. He told me that when we talked just as friends, he says, I never want to do it again. Then he realized that the feelings were there, and then he lets me know. And we kind of dove in feet first. I think God put us in each other's lives to show us both. We're still worthy of being loved, and we're good, decent people. Along with this blossoming relationship, Russ set about building a new life for himself. And in many ways, it was like starting from scratch. You know, started trying to put my life together and I didn't know what I was going to do because I was an IT professional who hadn't been working in IT for four years now. And that's a lifetime in the IT field. So what am I going to do with my life? And um, a friend of mine was opening this motorcycle shop. And I said, well, you know, I don't know a whole lot about motorcycles, but I do know about turning wrenches. I know about computers. And you don't. I can do websites. and I can do things that you can't do. And he decided to let me come hang out over there and start doing some work for him. So he gave me something to do. I moved in right around the corner from one of my best friends. Where I'm at today is I'm still working at the motorcycle shop and enjoying every day I get to go and do that as a free man. And I enjoy everything that was taken away from me for so long. And I appreciate things 
so much more appreciate my family and friends so much more because I know that they stuck by me during a very rough time. I see a lot of good things on the horizon. Thing that I like to tell people, don't ever lose hope no matter what your situation is, you know, because there's always a light at the end of every tunnel. And there is a happy ending. I got mine. In October 2021, Russ and Carol were officially engaged. But this isn't the extent of the good news that's come Russ's way since his exoneration, release, and Pam Hupp being put behind bars. In 2018, Prosecutor Leah Askey, as well as the judge from his original trial, were both soundly defeated in local elections. A key issue in the election, of course, was the mishandling of Russ's case. And finally, after almost an entire decade, the newly elected prosecuting attorney, Mike Wood, officially charged Pam with the first-degree murder of Betsy Faria. Like we said in episode one, the wheels of justice grind slow, a phrase most of us are familiar with, but the line that follows is just as important. The wheels of justice grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. And sometimes it takes a courageous prosecutor like Mike Wood to make sure they do, because after charging Pam Hupp, he announced he was determined to get to the root of the problem, corruption in the system itself. He had a press conference and announced that he was formally charging Pam Hupp, and he went on to say, and it was very informative, that he had found evidence of corruption in the police and the prosecution and that he was going to investigate that and try and bring those individuals to justice as well. And that right there is, is even more relieving because those guys are still out being cops or being lawyers and doing the same thing to people that they did to me and maliciously and unethically. I'm not against the police by any means. I just so happen to run along a large percentage of bad ones in my encounters. And there are some good ones out there there are many, many more good ones than there are bad ones. And they're embarrassed by the actions of the bad ones. So that said, you know, I've, I've been working with the current investigators to try and put some of the bad police behind bars and try and help them with the case against the current case against Pam Hupp and the murder of my wife. Beyond working with Lincoln County's prosecuting attorney, Russ has committed himself to raising awareness around wrongful convictions. He travels the country, gives talks, and is trying to build a coalition of supporters to address what he sees as some of the pressing issues within the judicial system. I speak about a couple of different things, and one of the things I like to do is raise awareness for wrongful conviction, because I don't want that to happen to anybody else. I speak about prosecutorial immunity, and that's something that shouldn't exist because it gives prosecutors carte blanche. And then I try and raise money or awareness for a little group called The Innocence Project. And some friends of mine and family, my cousin Mary and some other friends that we've been putting together are trying to get a chapter of The Innocence Project right here in St. Louis. And I can't do things all by myself, but I can get the help of a lot of people because people want to listen to what I have to say. One individual can't do it on their own. You know, we're trying to put together an army to fight against these things, you know, and right some of these wrongs. For every Russ Faria or Ryan Ferguson or Rodney Lincoln that you hear about, there's probably 10 or 20 guys that you don't even know their name that are going to sit in prison, possibly for the rest of their lives or even be put to death because of either mistakes that were made or, for instance, in my case, there was maliciousness and, and foul play on the part of the prosecutor, on the part of many of the police. And... It takes an army to, to defeat some of those things. We had the pleasure of meeting Russ Faria and his fiance Carol McAfee at this year's CrimeCon in Las Vegas at the beginning of May. He was there giving a talk, advocating for the wrongfully convicted, and inviting all of us to become part of the solution. It was impossible not to be in awe of a person who has undeservedly been through so much, but is determined to rise above 
and try to make the world around him better. A person whose real life story is almost too unbelievable if it were written as a novel. But Russ's story isn't over quite yet. Pam's trial for murdering Betsy was scheduled for this year, but has since been delayed after a public defender suddenly passed away. A new date is yet to be scheduled and could still be years away. If Russ's story has taught us anything, it's to expect the unexpected. In fact, one of the most unexpected things happened to Russ not very long after we met him at CrimeCon. But this was a good kind of surprise, and hopefully a sign of the way things are heading. We were sitting in a bar about a week ago with some friends that we met at CrimeCon that came in from out of town. And an individual and his wife come up to my table across table from me. This is a bar that I'm, I frequent, so I'm known in there. But uh, this individual I hadn't seen in there prior, he promptly says, I don't know if you know who I am. And I knew exactly who he was. I stood up, introduced him to all the ladies at the table, and said, ladies, Raymond Floyd. The man Russ is referring to is former Troy Police Department Major Raymond Floyd, who accused Russ 77 times of murdering his wife, Betsy. You can see why this was a huge moment for Russ, especially since he never expected to hear the words that would come out of the retired Major's mouth next. And he was kind of shaking in his boots when he was approached me, but uh, he proceeded to give me one of the most heartfelt, and sincere apologies that I've ever seen or heard in my life. He fully expected me to punch him in the head, which he said I'd be within my rights to do. Getting an apology from one of the individuals who'd been instrumental in his false conviction was certainly not on Russ's bingo card that night, but he was quick to graciously accept. He was told, as I was, that I failed that lie detector test. He was also told by Leah Askey to break me Hence that 45-minute conversation. He wasn't making any excuses for any of his actions, but he did proceed to let me know that my case had opened his eyes to a lot of things and a lot of corruption going on in his profession, which he's been in for over 30 years and his father was in before him. He was very embarrassed and very humble. And I told him in uncertain terms, you know, you want to make this up to me, be better. You know, I have a little thing I say, you know, when things happen to you in life, good or bad, you can be bitter or you can be better. And if you're a bitter person, you'll be miserable the entire rest of your life. Or you can be better and overcome it all. I try to be that better person. I saw that his apology was very sincere and I accepted his apology, which he did not expect me to do. Uh, my answer, as soon as he said that he was sorry and a little bit more than that, but my answer was to thank him. And he was a little dumbfounded. I said, you don't know how much that means because nobody has ever offered me that from your side. Throughout our conversation, he let me know that he's rededicated himself and he's actually trying to help with the current investigation, that he wants to be a better person. And I said, well, good. Teach others to be better. And I, I let him know and I said, I'm going to hold you to the fire. Holding authorities accountable for improper investigations, wrongful convictions, and personally vindictive prosecutors is a form of justice in itself, but it's only the beginning. Russ Faria lost nearly four years of his life to a judicial system that got it wrong the first time. And while it's the downstream ripple effects of fixing the system that will have a far greater impact on our world going forward, there is one thing that must never be forgotten in a case that impacted so many people's lives, and that's Betsy Faria. In the winter of 2011, Russ and Betsy Faria both knew her time on Earth was limited. She was dying from cancer, and while they were still determined to try and beat her terminal diagnosis, they recognized just how precious and important each moment together was and they were doing everything they could to savor what little time she had left. But that little time, those precious last weeks, 
months, or years. We'll never know. We're taken from each of them. And for what? Some money? Money that could never buy back one more day, an hour, or even one more minute of life that was stolen from everyone who loved her. A life she was making every attempt to live to its fullest. She was just a bubbly person. Everybody was her friend. And uh, she took everybody at face value. And she would be the first person to help somebody out if they needed her help. Whether you thought they deserved it or not, she was that person, you know. That was one of the things that attracted me to her, was her bubbly personality. And she had just the most beautiful and kind eyes, you know, and a beautiful smile. And, you know, that was the person she was. And a lot of people don't know that about her. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at Madness Pod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.